We wanted to show that video one more time because we know that the people in this room oftentimes have different schedules and maybe you didn't catch it the first time, but beyond that, we know it has a lot of impact into our lives. It helps to set the stage about what truly is important, and that is, that is people, not necessary plans, but because the gospel's been preached, not just from the pulpit, but in your lives, people have come to know who Jesus Christ is. And since people have come because of a proclaimed message, there's got to be plans because... Well, we have got to make more room at the table for others to eat at. We're in a series called Immeasurably More, if you haven't guessed already. It's been a family discussion, and so if you're visiting with us, we welcome you in a, in a sense to our living room. And what you're to hear today, we hope that it will bless your life and that you'll find something to take away from it. But I know that for those that call Bethany Christian Church home, we are challenging everyone who calls this place their home church that they pray and wrestle with the Lord. And that as you pray and wrestle, you ask of him what it is that he wants to do through you. Because we're challenging you to come prepared next week to make a commitment and uh, to pledge something over to this Immeasurably More campaign so that others just like you might know Jesus Christ just like, uh, just like you do. We're doing this because we know that God is going to continue to use us in a powerful way. I think it's pretty undeniable that he's been using us, but we know that God's going to continue to use us to do more than we ask or imagine, uh, immeasurably more, according to his power that's at work within us. And today I want to take a, a, a deep look into an obscure passage of Scripture in the Old Testament in the book of Second Kings, primarily in chapter 6 and in chapter Seven. If you turn with me, I want to work through five different stages and then draw some parallels upon what they were faced with to some of the challenges that we're being faced with and that we're embarking to. The setting of our lesson is in Second Kings chapter 6 and 7, and I want to give you some background because we're going to hear some unfamiliar names but some familiar territory. There's an area called Aram, in which today is modern-day Syria. Syria's been in the news quite a bit recently. It's just northeast of where Israel is at on the map. And back then, there was a war going on, much like there is today. Some things just, just never change. And within that war, there was a series of different battles. In one battle, God worked a miraculous way. He used a prophet by the name of Elisha. Elisha was a man that knew God intimately. God spoke through him, and people came to him, and he spoke to God on their behalf. He was this intercessory kind of person. And so God used Elisha to make a whole army. The, the Aramian's army came to take him and to make him captive, and God caused them to all be blind. And because they were all blind, Elisha could do whatever he wanted with them because they were blind. They had no idea what they were doing. And he rounded up this entire army all by himself, kind of like a Rambo-styled thing. And he held them captive. He, he bound them up in, in ropes, and he just let them sit and lie. God came to him and said, Elisha, what you're doing is not right. I mean, it might be fun, but it's not right. And he said, you need to release those people. So he released the Arameans. And then we find ourselves in Second uh, Kings chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 24. Now sometime later after that event, sometime later after Elijah held them captive because they were blind and released them, they must have restored their sight because Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army now and marched up and laid siege to 
Samaria. And Samaria was where Elijah was at. That was where the Israelites were at. That's where the people of God had lived. Samaria was a city that was encompassed by a wall and gates. It was fortified so that if an enemy came to attack it, they could have a better position to shoot arrows down on it and attack and be fortified from the oncoming forces. But that city also served its demise because it locked the people in as well. And so what had happened was, as the forces were sieging the city, a great famine took place. Because the king of Samaria had no idea that there was going to be a war wage. He wasn't prepared. He didn't have food prepared. And the city gates were locked up. And the siege had set in. And people were desperate for food. And when I say they were desperate for food, that's kind of an understatement there. They wanted to know, Elisha, when's God going to get us out of this? And interesting enough, they're in full desperation mode here. Elijah says to them, tomorrow God's going to get us out of this. I'm sure the king and the people thought, now that's impossible. There's no way God's going to intervene in a special way that by tomorrow the siege is going to be lifted and we'll finally be able to have some food because we're dying here of starvation. Now this is the background of 2 Kings 6 and 7. And we're going to make some correlations of the five stages that are found in this story. Here's the first stage. The first stage is that these people faced a desperate need. They're in the city. They're famished. They're in the city, they're dying. And when I say that there's a famine going on, that really doesn't paint the picture just right. Because the Bible gives us some explicit details about this famine. The Bible says that they were selling donkey heads for an extreme amount of money just so that people could find some meat, maybe boil it off and and get a little bit of the fat from the donkey's tissue around the bones of the jaw. It got so bad, the famine did, that families... Families were considering killing their children and boiling them so that they might be eaten. That's a famine. That's no food. Desperate times. I'm sure they're thinking this means desperate measures. Now, I don't want to make some correlation between that culture and our society today that don't have any real parallels, but I think there are some that we can make on a very spiritual level, not physical. Because as that city was experiencing a deep famine, a famine like they've never known physically, Friends, it is no stretch for us to say that our county and our country and our city are experiencing a famine, a spiritual famine, like the world has never known before either. We're in dire straits. I love what the comedian Eddie Murphy had kind of looked out at society and said about his own life and the life of those whom he knows in his world. Eddie, Eddie Murphy's not a Christian man. He, he, he knows who Jesus Christ is, but he usually says his name in vain more often does he, than he glorifies him. Here's what Eddie Murphy points out. He says, no matter how much money you make or how many cars or houses you have or how many people you know that can make you happy, I don't think that there's anyone who feels like, I don't think there's anyone who doesn't feel like something is missing in their life. That's a guy who has it all saying, it doesn't matter how much I have, I still feel like something is missing. And Eddie Murphy is just pointing out what theologians have pointed out for thousands of years. That is within our inherentness of who we are. We're created in God's image. The Latin term is imago Dei. We're created in God's image. That we have a desire to be and to link up with God. And the theologians say it like this. They say we have a longing to go back to the Garden of Eden. And have that good relationship like we once had before sin separated us between God in this relationship. I think at the core of all of us, we have this needed desire to call God our king. To call God our creator. To look to Jesus as savior. And those who are out in this world 
who haven't found that yet, well, they're spiritually starving. They're longing for God. And we're in a decaying world. We're in a morally decaying world. I have never had a conversation after watching the evening news with somebody and had this conclusion. You know what? It seems like every day this world just seems to be a better place. Have you? Because it's not. I mean, we read the newspaper. We get online and check out the news sites and we hear the local news reports and we say, this world's going to hell in a handbasket, which interesting enough, I found the news last night. They had a statistic. 58% of Americans think that America is going to hell in a handbasket. That was a real survey. And I'm so thankful that in this morally decaying world, we have some people right here that want to preserve it by being the salt in our community. That you're a part of a greater fellowship. You're part of a greater kingdom that has a desire to preserve this world. Because let's face it, let's get honest for a second. The United States is being bombarded by a secular message and we're buying into it like crazy. The secular message is sin and sinfulness is now the new standard of morality. And what is worse is that some churches, some churches are buying into this. Even some denominations have fell for this hook, line, and sinker, Satan's lie. And we've, we've put sin in the pulpit. We've glorified sin in our churches. And I'm thankful. While we don't get it right all the time, we don't get it right all the time. That we have a desire to say, no, sin is not the standard. God's holy word is our standard. And that is such a cross-cultural counter message to what the world has to say. But the truth is, like the Apostle Paul told the Romans, I think it could be easily said of some of our churches, they've just simply exchanged the truth for a lie. Now, we don't get it right all the time. This is not a sermon about we get it right, others get it wrong. That's not it. This is about rising up to the standards of God and holding those things high. You've decided in your life to be the salt of the world to preserve it. You've decided to be the light in the shine in the dark places of this community. And this world needs it. Our city needs it. Our community needs it. Our county needs it. Man, these are desperate times. These are desperate times because there are people that are starving spiritually. And friends, we just happen to be serving food. So look at it like this for a minute. We're just beggars telling other beggars where to find some bread. Beggars telling other beggars where to find some bread. And as we talk about buildings, as we talk about finances, we need to remember what's at stake here for a second and clear your head and let's get on a spiritual level for a moment. We had some surveys done a little while back, expensive surveys. They came in to tell us the culture, the climate, spiritually in our community. Now, you know we live in the Bible Belt, but the problem is that's the problem. We all think we're believers. We all think that our neighbors love the Lord. We all think that the people in our life have a secure relationship with Christ, but our surveys told us the facts, and that's not true. 10,000 people in our county, but roughly 33,000, 10,000 say that they have complete assurance of their salvation through Jesus Christ. That means if you were to ask them, are you saved? They'd say, yes, I'm saved because Jesus Christ is my Savior. And we say, amen. Let's hear it for that. But you know what that means? Roughly 22,000 people, when asked that same question, cannot say with assurance that they're saved by Jesus. They say something like, I don't have a church home, I don't go to church anywhere, or I don't have the confidence to say that I'm a saved person. 22,000 people, two-thirds of our community says they don't have the confidence in their faith. They are, in a sense, in a famine, spiritually. 
They are hungry for a message to absorb. And friends, we're, here we are as beggars saying, I, I found some food. I found some food. It's in the standards of Jesus Christ. And, and people are going to want to follow beggars to where the food's at, friends. And that's why people are coming to this place on a Sunday morning, on Wednesdays, and throughout the week. They're coming to your homes and small groups and Bible study fellowships because you have gone out, salt and light, beggars telling other beggars, I found some bread. I found some bread. Here's the second stage we see in this story. And that's, there's a calculated risk. It moves from desperate need to a calculated risk. Turn with me to chapter 7. Look at verse, look at verse 3 of 2 Kings. It says, now there were four men with leprosy. Now leprosy is this awful disease. It's, it, it rots away the tissue of the skin. It's horrible. It's, it's, it, it makes the body stink. And at that time, people that were leopardous were kicked outside of the city. And they were told to live on their own and find their own means of living. They were basically kicked outside of the city to die. So now there are four of these men at the entrance of the city gate. And they said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we will go into the city, well, the famine's in there and we'll die. If we stay here, we'll die. So let's go to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. And if they spare us, we live. If they kill us, well, we die. Do you see that their attitude is? There's no food in the city, so even if they let us in, we'd still die. There's no food at the city gates because they won't let us in, and so we're going to die. So why not have a calculated risk here, go over to the enemy, and maybe, just maybe, long shot, the enemy might have some mercy and grace on us, and they might throw us some scraps from their meal, and we'll be able to to be fed. I think there's a similar correlation to the situation that's going on here at Bethany. Of taking a calculated risk. Let's just presuppose for a moment that we decide as a church body that we are totally satisfied reaching 700-some people on a Sunday morning, and that's it. I mean, we just say, hey, that's the cap. That's all we're going to do. We're just going to reach this many people. Only this many will fit into the sanctuary. Only that many people will fit into a Sunday school. We only want 200-some kids in our child uh, uh, ministries because that's all that fit back there. And so we just, we're capped out, and we're done. We're just, Thank you, Lord but no thanks for any more increase. Let's just say we decide that. You know what's going to happen to this place? It's going to be like Boggs Lake. It's going to be contaminated. It's got no water running out of it, and it's eventually going to drain until you can see the bottom. And one day you're going to walk in here and say, what happened? What happened here? I'll tell you what happened. The church is like a lake. It needs fresh water flowing in as it expands. But for that fresh water to come in, what has to happen? The reservoir's got to grow. And friends, as we make more room at the table, we know that there are people that are spiritually starving in our community. And we're making more room at the table so they can find a seat like you have found a seat so that we can be fed on the word of God. Friends, we're taking some calculated risks. I I will totally admit that. Calculated risks in uncertain times like these lepers took. These guys decided we're going to die if we stay here. We're going to die if we don't do anything. And so we might as well go and risk it and see if the enemy will be a help to us. Friends, we've got to be risky when it comes to winning a community over for Jesus Christ. Don't you think so? Someone took a risk on you and it changed your world forever. They asked you to come to church or they invited you to Jesus and you decided to discover the scriptures and you found Christ and you were changed because of it. So what we're doing is nothing more than what God has always done. 
God looked at the Israelites in the Old Testament and he said, you know that when I'm proclaimed as righteous and good, people are going to come to me. They're going to flock to me. So you better get ready and you better have a bigger tent for those that come to me. In Isaiah 54, verse 2, God says to the nation of Israel, Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen the cords and strengthen your stakes. Why? Because God says, Anytime that I'm lifted up, anytime that I'm exalted, people are going to come to me. It's when we get in the way that people stop coming. But God says, Let them come to me. So we're going to take some calculated risks knowing that God has been using us. He's been using us, without a doubt been using us. He's done more than we've ever imagined or dreamed, immeasurably more. Not because of our power, but His power at work within us. Here's the third stage in this story, and that's divine confirmation. So these beggars are in a bad spot. They make a calculated risk, and here's what they find. Chapter 7, 2 Kings, verse 5. At dusk, they got up and they went into the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittites and the Egyptian kings to attack us. They got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was, and they ran for their lives. Do you get the picture of what's going on here? God did something miraculous. He intervened in a special way, a psychological, spiritual way. They believed they had a head game that, that they heard in the distance a large army. So panic went through the enemy camp, and they just said, Hey, I'm out of here. I don't want to be destroyed by the Hittites. I don't want to be destroyed by the Egyptians. And they fled. But there was no army on the horizon. God had made that all unfold. Can you imagine now? Can you imagine these lepers walking into that camp? They were unsure if this was a trick, a trap. Maybe thinking the enemy might spring on them any time. But they had realized something had taken place. They had realized that there had been something that had had the army leave quick, the enemy leave quick. Quickly, I don't know if they knew it was miraculous yet or not, but I, I, I do know that they knew something spectacular had happened. They had confirmation that their calculated risk was going to pay off. There were all this food there. There was riches there. There were all the spoils of the enemy right there in front of them. I think, I think divine confirmation comes in so many different forms. Let me tell you about a few. In 2008, 160 people that called Bethany home in 2008 160 people called Bethany home. And what they decided to do was to step out on faith and move from one location to this location to this area of Washington that we were ministering to more than where we were in Montgomery. Now, we knew it was going to be costly, and it scared us. 160 people were willing to say, we want to take on a $4 million project, which what this whole thing cost. 160 people. And they stepped out on faith, and there was divine confirmation that came nearly immediately. God went ahead and fought some battles that we thought we were anticipating to fight, but he went ahead and fought those battles. Like, for example, when we moved locations, there was very little disapproval from the congregation about walking away from a building that had housed our ministry for 100-plus years. Now, Some were heartbroken, and very understandably, because there were so many memories connected with that old property. But you know what they did? They knew that there were more memories to be made because of what Christ was doing through us, and they knew God was going to expand the kingdom through us. 
And if you've been here in just the last two years, you're a confirmation of that seed that was planted in the ground in 2008 by those 160 people. You are your own confirmation this morning that God is using this place. I mean, we talked about it. We've had now nearly 120 baptisms since the day we've moved in here. That is incredible to us. I mean, for a guy that saw maybe five baptisms a year when I first started at Bethany, it is incredible to see this many people giving their lives over to Christ and lives being changed. There's confirmation that takes place time and time and time again that God is using us to to do things that we never dreamed, immeasurably more things than we've ever dreamed or imagined, according to His power that's at work within us. Friends, hundreds and hundreds of you in this room are the result, the offspring of some seed that was planted in the ground in 2008, and it was watered, but God made it grow. And as it grew, you're the divine confirmation that this congregation is doing something great for God's kingdom, all of us together. Isn't it amazing what God's been doing? Here's the best part of the story, though, stage four of the story. Act four, whatever you want to call it. And that is the unselfish attitude of these four lepers that had just won the lottery. Second Kings chapter seven, verse eight. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. Now, they're going from house to house, right? They're checking out what's in there. They're recognizing no one's here. And maybe, just maybe, they might have the run of the place. It says they ate and they drank. They carried away silver, gold, clothing, and went off and hid them. Four guys have all the money they've ever seen. They have all the food they can eat, and they hide it. And then they return and entered another tent. So they're going house to house. They have already more than enough just in one tent, but they're going tent to tent. And they took some things and they hid that stuff also. You get the picture, right? What a strange sight. Four guys who are outcasts of society now have the run of the mill of the place. Here they are probably dressing up in the royal robes of the king. One puts on the crown and says, hey, look at me. I'm the king for the day. I can imagine these guys eating so much food that they've topped them Starbucks off that they're sick and they've just been gluttons with the food. And then they're, they're throwing up, but they're saying, hey, we've been so famished. Let's just have some more food here. They've got all the jewels and jewelry and gold and silver they can possibly manage to carry away with. And here they are, rags to riches, gone from death to life, and they are just living it up. And then you get into verse 9, 2 Kings chapter 7. Because the story takes a beautiful, unselfish twist. Then they said to each other, you know what we're doing is not right. This is the day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. They went and called to the city gatekeepers and told them, we went into Aramian camp and not a man was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys and the tents were, were left just as they were. The gatekeeper shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. You know what the lepers realized? The lepers realized how blessed they were. This isn't right. And I, their conscience gets the better of them. The spirit begins to convict them. This is not right that the four of us just feast away on this. And there's people dying in that city and they're famished. And, they're, and all we have to do is intervene. That's all we have to do. We just have to tell them where the bread's at. This isn't good for us to do this. Here they were, storing away stuff. Riches of earth where moths and rust could destroy, where thieves could break in and steal and and they're saying, no, there's got to be more to it than this. There's got to be more than storing up my, for myself treasures on earth. 
And so in this unselfish attitude, they race back to the city and they tell everybody, they tell everybody that the enemy has left. God's done something amazing and that there's food enough to eat. The famine can be lifted and it can be over. What an unselfish attitude. I want to explain something in a couple ways here. We get asked from time to time, has there been a lot of opposition to what we've been talking about for the last three weeks? You know my answer is? No, we've had one person. We've had one person come to us and say, you know, I feel really uncomfortable with the messages that have been preached over the last three, three Sundays. I've been with you guys for two years, but I feel uncomfortable now. And I'm thinking about leaving the church. And we have a conversation that says, you want to break fellowship because you felt uncomfortable? We've walked with you for two, two years. Let's, you, all we're doing is asking you to pray. No one's ever said, here's the amount. No one's ever said, here's what you need to do. We've just said, would you please pray? And say, God, what do you want? to do through me and then commit that that pledge that makes them feel uncomfortable I guess in some ways I can understand that but Christ never called us to a level of comfortability did he there's going to be times when we're going to be stretched in the faith but you know how many people have said man I'm ready for this I can't wait till next Sunday emails personal conversations phone conversations, text messages of people that have said, I can't wait for October the 26th to commit to what God has laid on my heart. I met with a woman a few weeks ago that had been involved in an accident, and because of her injury, she had been hospitalized. She's gotten out now, and here's what she says. Pastor, I've come into some money and that I'll be getting for my pain and suffering. That's a good way to say her insurance company sued the pants off of somebody, and she's getting some cash for her pain and suffering. She's saying, I want to be offering some of that to the Lord. I don't have much, but what I do have, I want to give over to the Lord because I've been so welcomed in this place and I want others to feel just as welcomed. Thank goodness for an accident. A man approached me this past week and he said, how much should I give? Now you don't ask a preacher that question. You don't, that's a wide open shot for me. And I had to get super spiritual and say, well, it's not about how much you give. I wanted to say how much you got. But I had to say, Stay, keep, it, keep it spiritual, keep it spiritual. I had to say, sorry, you're going to have to wrestle with the Lord on that one. You know, he didn't want to hear that. He got upset at me. He got upset at me. He said, you just say it and I'll write it down and that's what I'm going to give. I said, it's not that easy. I want you stretched in your faith. I want you to wrestle with God. God might tell you nothing. Or God might tell you something, but you're going to wrestle here. Three days later, he comes back. He says, the next day I fasted, the rest of the days I prayed, and I am so excited, my wife and I, to give on October 26th, this next Sunday. I said, how much is that going to be? No, I didn't say it. <laughs> A mother told me about her family that her husband relies on their semi-truck. It's the main source of their income. It is the paycheck to the household. She does some odd jobs, but this is the main source. And it broke down with a very costly repair. Out of nowhere, this thing just went down. And she comes to me two weeks ago and she says, hey, our truck went down, but let me tell you something about it. She said, here's what God revealed to us. This was a very costly, costly repair. And yet somehow, we were able to look at our budget and to hold back some cash and to be able to pay off for that repair and still be able to have our TV, our phone, our food, and everything that the kids basically want. She said, you know what, Matt, that showed me? It showed me that if we were able to hold back some money for that, certainly we could hold back some money for a Measure League More campaign. That is unselfish attitude. 
two guys pinned me to this back wall right here Thursday, and they just wouldn't give up my ear because they just kept talking. These guys give of their, their energy and their time and their effort like it's nobody's business around here. They're always giving. They're always giving. They're always giving. They're never taking. And if there was anybody that say, I gave it the office, I'm justified in not helping in this campaign financially because I give so much time and energy, it'd be these guys. And they say, Matt, I want to thank you for the opportunity. I said, it's not what I'm doing. And they said, we have the opportunity to be given back out of gratefulness for what God has done for us. I'm thinking, man, you guys have topped off your level of giving. I can't, I, you want to still continue to do it? That's the grateful heart. You know, my boys are, are pretty good with money. This past year, they already bought a house and a truck. A Lego house and a Tonka truck, but I mean, they're pretty good with their money. They had kind of asked us, Dad, Mom, what, what is it that you guys are doing with this thing? And we began to try to tell them, and they've come up with a few ideas. Now, here was one of their ideas out of a few of them. One of their ideas was they were going to pull their money together over the next three years. They were each going to give $100 a piece, so that's roughly, what, over three years, $900 altogether. And I just explained to them, I said, you know, if you gave $11 more a piece each year, you could hit 1000 Now, their eyes lit up, $1,000, that's big money to them. I mean, when your only income is Christmas and your birthday, that is big money. I don't know what they're going to do. We're not persuading them to do one thing or another. We said, whatever you want to do. Now, there's some days where Harrison walks in and says, I'm keeping it for myself. And we say, okay, if that's what you want to do, as long as you've prayed about it. I'm impressed with what God is doing. And I know there's so many people that are hungry to give because you've experienced an unselfish attitude. And you're saying, I can't wait for next week to come because you know the scriptures, Second. Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, you know the scriptures. Whoever sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. Whoever sows generously will what? Will reap generously. And I can't thank people enough for having an unselfish attitude. Here's the last part of this story, the last act, the last stage of this story found in 2 Kings chapter 7. It has to do with incredible blessings that were had. Verse 14, 2 Kings 7. So they selected two chariots. So the king, I guess, selects two chariots with their horses, and the king sent them after the uh, Aramean army. So it's like a kind of a search and discover mission. Figure out what happened. He commanded the drivers to go and find out what happened. They followed them as far as the Jordan. Now that's a river, a a river that that still exists. And they found the whole road strewed with clothing and equipment. The Arameans had thrown away in their headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported the king. The people went out and plundered the camp. You see the picture again, right? These guys were so quick. The enemy was so quick to get the stuff off of them that they're just leaving this trail of stuff, of possessions behind them because it was just weighing them down. They're thinking, sword, too heavy, get rid of it. Uh, An army's pursuing me. Backpack, too heavy, get rid of it. An army's pursuing me. And now they're just running on the clothes that they've got on. And all all their stuff is like this long trail all the way to the Jordan River, back to their camp. Because God intervened. You know the reason? You know the reason why he had done what he had done, God had done? It's because there were some people in this in that city that decided to take a risk. A very calculated risk. There were some people in that city that decided that they were going to go ahead, move forward, and they're going to do something that they thought was going to get them killed, but but it didn't. God intervened and did something very miraculous through them. And because of that, a whole city was saved. 
They were in famine, but now the famine was released and the people ran out and they got to experience the great blessings that these lepers had experienced because beggars told other beggars where to find some bread. Pretty simple, right? Because four men who were outcasts of society decided to share the blessings that they had discovered. A story that came out a few years ago in Newsweek magazine was a story of a retired NBA player named Stacy King. Stacy King uh, was asked what the highlight of his basketball career was. He said when he was a rookie playing for the Chicago Bulls, he was allowed to come in for just the last minutes to score just one point. And he looks back at that amazingly and says that was the highlight of his career, even though he went on to do some great things. Newsweek kind of pinned him down to that and they said, Come on, explain this away now. He said, no, without a doubt, without a doubt. I don't even think about it. The highlight of my career was the night that Michael Jordan and I combined to score 70 points together. He scored one basket. Michael Jordan scored the rest. Maybe that's the theory of my boys. I don't know. We just want to do something. We're not sure what we want to do. It may not seem like much, but we want to do it. We want to contribute to something greater. Friends, you know what the truth about this congregation is? That not all of us score the same points. We're not looking for equal gifts here. Get that out of your head. It's about equal sacrifice. About being stretched in the faith and saying, Lord, I'm just one beggar who wants to tell other beggars about where some bread is at. Some have just like boggled this around, manipulated it. This is a financial campaign. This is a faith campaign. We trust God to do immeasurably more than we've ever dreamed, asked, or imagined through His power at work within us. Why the expansion of buildings? So there can be more seats, more places at the table for others to be fed. Why the expansion of classrooms? So there can be seats at the table where more can be fed. Why the expansion of children's ministry? So there can be more seats at the table where more can be fed and receive the blessings, the incredible blessings like you have through God's word and the fellowship of the church. And maybe today you're in a place where you recognize you're in desperate need and it's spiritual need you're in. And I'm here to say that Jesus Christ has solved our greatest problem. He solved our greatest need. That's the need for a savior. And your life might be famished. It might be tired and wore out. And it's a spiritual thing. There's no hope. There's no assurance. You might be amongst the 22,000 that we talked about. You're in spiritual darkness. Your life's not preserved by Jesus. Friends, if that's your situation today, let this beggar tell you you where to find bread. In Jesus Christ. He even calls himself the bread of life. And when you eat of him, you'll never hunger. You'll never thirst again. Your heart won't wrestle with, am I saved or unsaved? There's got to be more to this world. I think they have everything else, but there's got to be more to it. All that kind of stuff is put away with because Christ is King. Jesus is Savior. And if you haven't made Jesus Christ your Savior and Lord today, I want to meet with you. If you long to find out what it means to have the bread of life in your life, I want to meet with you just right over here, myself and a handful of other ministers. But let's stand together. Let's sing a song of invitation. And as we do, Let's respond to the gospel message that Jesus rescues sinners.